I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Monsieur Goyette. Spencer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You are a curatorial assistant in the Beauty Biodiversity Museum's uh, herbarium, right? Yep. What does a curatorial assistant do in an herbarium? What is an herbarium? So an herbarium is a collection of dried botanical objects, um, such as algae, vascular plants, um, bryophytes, which are mosses, liverworts and hornworts, lichens and fungi. And my job is to just support um, research that's ongoing at UBC um, and to help my two collections curator managers. So we have two collections curators in the herbarium. There's Linda, who's in charge of vascular plants and algae, and there's Karen, who's in charge of uh, bryophytes, lichens, and fungi. And so I facilitate, you know, kind of curating the collection, maintaining it. I tell everybody back home that I'm essentially a dead plant librarian. And <laughs> I think that's how my family, my family gets it. Yeah, I, I meant to ask you about that. You called them botanical specimens, uh, not plants. Uh, were you just trying to be fancy or is there a difference? I just, I was very trying, very fancy, only okay. fancy over here. Yeah, no, I, well, so I think botanical in the sense that they're not all necessarily, they're not all plants um, and they're not all even closely related, um, but they've historically been studied by botanists and the collection um, is, is still botanical in that respect. So fungi aren't close to plants at all. Um, but they're with, you know, the rest of the herbarium. And so there you go. And lichens aren't even, you know, lichens are a symbiotic, you know, consortium of, you know, bacteria, fungi, algae, cyanobacteria. <laughs> Sounds very uh, extensive and comprehensive. <laughs> How many specimens do you have in the collection? Combined, uh, presently, uh, across all five of our collections, we have about 600,000 specimens oh my goodness. Um, in the database. There's a lot more. Um, that are needing to be accessioned and processed in our collection, but it's just a matter of time and capacity and, you know, persons, you know, in the, in the museum. <laughs> Speaking of the person, uh, tell me about yourself. What did you study to become a curatorial uh, assistant? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a very good question. So I'm originally from North Carolina in the United States. And as an, I did my undergrad like a decade ago. So I graduated in 2013 and I double majored in ecology and plant biology. And I've just kind of fell into um, vascular plant taxonomy, um, conservation, and uh, endangered species protection. And so I, I had like a cool, there's a cool couple of projects I got involved in as an undergrad and I took some really great classes. And that was kind of a springboard for me to eventually work in collections um, for the past, like including work that I've done in undergrad for like, you know, I've got like eight years that I've worked in collections. And that was, I worked, so I was in my undergrad, um, you know, taking classes and working in the herbarium there. And then uh, shortly after I graduated, um, I worked at the Smithsonian for like three years in their botany department, doing essentially the same work that I'm doing here at the BD, but just in a different institution. And then um, after doing that for about three years, I decided I wanted to learn more about lichens. I felt like I wanted to explore a different country um, and there was an opportunity at the University of Alberta. So I went there in 2018 and decided to get my master's. 
starting lichens. And then, and then shortly after that, I started at the BD. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. What did you do your master's in? Uh, So I studied, uh, yeah, it's, I feel like, um, yeah, so I studied lichens and I studied their fungal pathogens. Um, Specifically, the lichens that I studied uh, are called hair lichens and they look like hair. I wish I I should have brought one actually, just because it's pretty cool to show people. Um, And, uh, and yeah, I was, I was kind of curious about like a fungal pathogen that my supervisor had found um, on, uh, growing on this that hasn't really been documented. And so we ended up just kind of looking into what this, this mold could be, this pathogen. Hmm. And we ended up describing a new species off of it, which is cool and publishing a paper earlier this year. And yeah, it was, it was definitely a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. I never, never really think of something, um, as, um, a big, I never really think of anything that's as ubiquitous as lichens as having, um, pathogens and I guess pandemics even. <laughs> it's very, yeah, like extremely topical. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it's funny. I mean, everything eats something like the, like, you know, mm. fungi are really, really good at just breaking things down and lichens are like such a complex organism, um, that it's also kind of a niche complex organism. Like a lot of people are like, there has been a lot of research in lichens, but there's not the same amount of research in, you know, lichen pathogens as had there, as there have been in like human pathogens per se. And so you know, everything eventually need, is going to be decayed. Everything is going to be infected by something. The one thing I learned about, I think I've, I have continued to learn about while working in collections, being a biologist, is that there's just so much life. Where there is an opportunity for something to grow, it will grow, like, hands down. In a sense, you really act as the bridge between our museum, uh, focusing on rocks and, and things, and your museum with life, mm-hmm. uh, because lichens break down rocks and Give us ecosystems. Actually, yeah. <laughs> We're coming after your collection. <laughs> uh, what got you into biology and plants? Biology and plants. Um, when I was in, I mean, I've always, I, so grown up, grown up in the South, like it was, I didn't live in a rural place per se, but there is like a, like there is definitely like the ability to get into nature quite easily. And so I was always kind of just like bombing around as a kid, going into creeks um, fishing, um, you know, hanging out with friends in the woods. And at some point, I think in high school, I just realized I was like, I don't really know any of these species. And to me, that seemed like an interesting kind of thing. Just like, there's like all this stuff around us. I don't know the names of these things, but I know that some of them look different. And, um, I think that was the initial, like, oh, like there's, there's cool stuff you know, happening. I also had an aquarium when I was a kid. Like I thought, I don't know. I thought fish were neat. Um, I still think fish are neat, <laughs> not as neat as plants, unfortunately, <laughs> but, or, or botanical, you know, objects, but, um, yeah. So I think, yeah, just being out in nature as a kid was really the, um, that was the springboard. Great. Well, you've got quite the comprehensive list in your head now. Anytime I come to you with a photograph of a plant, um, you can tell me exactly what it is. <laughs> I think it's, well, <laughs> and you've done it successfully many times. <laughs> I feel like, oh yeah, I think, it, well, it just takes time. I actually, I've, I've talked to people and I used to teach classes on like, um, plant taxonomy or mycology. And there, there'd always be like a component of the course that involved identifying something. And usually students were kind of like, oh, I have to like read this really boring key and you know, yada, yada, yada. But I tried to impress upon them that you're essentially learning a language. Like mm-hmm. as you drive down the highway, as you walk through the woods, you, you're surrounded by like just tons of life. And as you learn a language, the same way that you would learn plants or you know, birds or whatever, it kind of makes sense after a while. It just starts clicking. The more you expose yourself to it, the more you practice it, the more you think about it intentionally, um, you'll learn the language of, you know, of nature. It just, you know, takes some, takes some priming, takes like 
a lot of work, <laughs> but it happens, you know. That's a very poetic way of putting um, what I'm sure many <laughs> students find to be <laughs> yeah. um, quite a grueling process. Yeah, I don't know if it actually worked. I feel like the students are often, you know, kind of like, okay, whatever, man. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, like, but, you know, we got through it. Good. Well, I'm sure you inspired a few of them. <laughs> Maybe, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm curious. Um, your work is ongoing. You're always looking through this collection and trying to help researchers. Uh, but do you have any special projects that you're working on right now? Hmm. Special projects. Um, there's a few, th um, there's a few things that I have started working on. Um, not necessarily directly associated with the work that I'm doing. Like I think within the confines of my work, I don't really do research per se. Um, that being said, I did do, um, this, I've started this really cool project with, um, Karen, the, uh, the curator of bryophytes, lichens, and fungi on a very endangered moss from Haida Gwaii. So it's only known from a four by four meter cliff face oh, wow. um, in all of North America. And there was some questions as to whether it was this thing that's in, it's, it's, it's been described and known um, as a species, but people were like, is it actually the species that we have from Europe where there's like several small populations or could it be something from, you know, Central and South America? And so I was, I did the DNA work for that. Um, and we had some really cool results. I don't know if I can share them yet, but at some point you'll probably... The, the work's ongoing, so that's like not of quite course. finished yet. Um, and then I, 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 we had a volunteer in the herbarium who was collecting a lot of plants in a remote part of BC, um, Kakwa Provincial Park. And um, she was interested in lichens. Like right after I started, she contacted Linda and her and Linda had been in contact for a while because she was collecting plants for Linda. And she's like, I want to learn about lichens. Do you, like, what's the best way to do that? And Linda was like, well, it's fate. You know, I should have it. Spencer just started and he's fresh off his master's. He can talk to you and I think, you know, you guys can figure something out. And so she's collected over the past like couple of summers, she's collected a bunch of lichens and I've identified them or I'm in the process of identifying them right now. And um, I'm going to write a short piece for uh, Nature Vancouver's publication. I think it's called Discovery. Oh, great. So that'll be fun. And then I'm really into like, not to just blab and blab, um, but um, I'm really into these uh, fungal insect pathogens and it's in this Really, it's it's its own class, um, the Labul biniomycetes. They I don't know if they have a common name, um, but they yeah try saying that like three times fast. Um, uh, but yeah, there's there's not actually much documentation for Canada or for BC. People have found them on iNaturalist. Like there's I think 17 observations for one species in all of BC, but there's only one herbarium specimen that's been deposited, and that was uh, in 1975 in Ottawa. So. There's, there's a lot of diversity within that group that I think is completely untapped in BC. And I'm really fascinated by them. They're really small. They're really, like, they're associated with like insect hosts. Um, and there's not that many specialists across the world, but they're just like, I just think they're neat. Like, you know, that Marge Simpson meme where she's holding a potato. It's like, I just think they're neat. I, I do the same thing with <laughs> level video on my CDs, but yeah. And with potatoes. Yeah. And with potatoes too. I love potatoes. <laughs> so you're basically CSI uh, herbarium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so those are the three projects, I guess, like generally, and the rest of it is just kind of um, the same, you know, curatorial assistant work. Do you have a lab? Like a lab space? Or, yeah. No, like it, we have, we, I've, I've used uh, Jeanette Witten. She's the uh, director of the herbarium and we used her lab space mm -hmm. um, for, for the, the moss project from Idaguay Zagadon. Um, but the herbarium doesn't have a lab space presently, no. At least you you have access to one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really great that we have access to Jeanette's. Yeah, and it's really nice. It's a good lab. Now, one of my favorite parts of this interview series has been hearing about field work. Um, <laughs> I've never gone to the field, oh. but it sounds like a place where 
things that are very frustrating to you happen, uh, which also happen to be very entertaining for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild. Do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share? Oh, fun field stories. I've done, I've done like a decent amount of field work. Um, what's, I guess like, so I, I, when I was working for the Smithsonian, I also got to go to the field, uh, twice. Uh, and the first time I went to the field was, uh, to Mexico in 2015 and we were looking for ferns. Um, and there's like 300 species of ferns in the region of Mexico that we were going to, um, which is quite enormous. It was associated with this like ethnobotanical project. It was really neat. And I, I think Mexico is like an unbelievably cool place and I wish I could go back. Um, cause it was just fascinating. Um, but we, the day that we w- like arrived was like the day that, uh, El Chapo broke out of prison. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we were like, well, he was on the other side of the country, but we kept joking. Like, hopefully he doesn't <laughs> like, you know, ferns and, you know, on, you know, like, you know, hopefully he's not looking for ferns over here in, in Puebla. Like that would be a bummer. But, um, yeah, that was, that wasn't like a crazy field story, but it was just kind of like an odd circumstance of, oh yeah, that's right. Like El Chapo. Fun. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and also a way to spice up, uh, Fernfield work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Fernfield. It's Fernfield work is very spicy. I don't know if it needs any more spice. You know, it's it's the best. It's unfortunate you haven't gone to the field. I feel like it's, you know, it's the, it's it's really really fun doing field work. I think even when it's bad, it's fun. Like yeah. I hate <laughs> camping. Oh really? <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. Um, I'm curious mm. uh, for people who are listening. Why is it important to have um people doing your work? Mm. And why is it important for us to identify new lichens and mosses? Hmm. I think so. I think having some sort of biological collection generally is important because there's an infinite number of questions which can be answered from the specimens that we have. Like our specimens are from like uh, the 1850s, 1860s is like our oldest are are the earliest collections that we have. Um, And from that, you can glean a lot of information about how species are distributed how pathogens of species are distributed, if things are disappearing, that's important for us to know. Um, and as far as like the relationship of us knowing where things are, we're also involved as species on the planet. And while we can, you know, engineer environments for ourselves quite easily, uh, I have the personal philosophy that there will come a time where we can't do that successfully. And so you have very common species now that might not be common in a hundred years, you know, how many species can we lose before ultimately we lose ourselves? And so I think from that, like general, like big picture, like that's why I think collections are important. Um, as far as like describing new species of mosses and lichens, um, I think it helps us understand better the places that we come from. So mosses, lichens, fungi, vascular plants. I mean, you know, it, 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 it grounds you in a sense of place to know that, you know, this is the nature that's around me. This is important. I'm also part of this. It's good to know that yeah, there's new things to be found and, and that they deserve, um, they deserve recognition and championship as well. We often underestimate the uh, complexity of the human ecosystem, mm. thinking that it's just our homes and workplaces. But like you said, the planet itself is changing at an unbelievable rate. Um, and that ecosystem is changing mm. and you're taking snapshots of it um, and helping us decode where we come from, like yeah. you said. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> now you're very passionate about your work. What's the best part of your work? The best part of my work. Um, I love, I mean, I kind of love all of it. Uh, I, I think actually the, a really nice thing about working at the BD is that we're able to interface with so many different types of people daily. 
So because all of our collections are public facing, I get the opportunity to like open up cabinets and sometimes like, you know, small children, adults, adolescents will just kind of be like, oh, what's this? And then I get to kind of explain, you know, the collections, why they're important, some cool stuff. Like, look at this weird, you know, fungus. Look at this like really interesting moss or, you know, this is really cool. And I think that's, that's really, that's really impactful. And then also interacting with students um, at UBC, kind of helping them like learn about our collections, like talking about life stuff, you know, cause I'm not that much older than them, but I have a little bit more experience. So I feel like if they're like, ah, what do I do about this? I'm like, well, this is what I did. I don't know if you should do it, but you know, this is great. <laughs> and then working with profs and researchers cause they're, you know, specialists in the field. And, you know, it's really great to hear about their field stories or their like kind of trajectory as well. Like I'm very people curious, I think. And that that's like, besides the collections themselves and learning on a continual basis, people always. The BD really is a special institution because of that open storage philosophy. Um, open, but organized storage. Mm. Um, it's very well ordered um, in a way that's not overwhelming, mm. um, like some other open storage. I always say it's my second favorite museum in Vancouver. Um, <laughs> Are you biased for the first uh, favorite? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, but yeah, curatorial work has always um, had a bit of a stigma in my mind because mm. um, you're locked away in a back room. But the kind of curatorial work that you're doing like you said is um fun and exciting because you do get to interact with people and so you get the best of both worlds yeah yeah it's like it's a nice balance of like kind of yeah like an almost monastic existence versus like you know mm. being with people in the daily and and seeing them yeah that's the best part of your job uh, but not everything is uh always pleasant what's the worst part or the most challenging part of your job most challenging part of my job. Um, yeah. I feel like, yeah, sometimes the, the monotony is quite, is, is something to get into. Like if you're just kind of cleaning data on a database or if you're, you know, folding packets for bryophyte or lichen specimens, it can get kind of dull, um, which is, it's, it's frustrating. Just, that's the nature of the work. So I kind of embrace it as it is. Podcasts have become, you know, a really good friend of mine. I, I finally bought a, a Spotify subscription after years of just, you know, listening to advertisements, but now I made the dive. Um, that's, that's not too bad. Uh, also, I think one thing that's unfortunate about working within a museum structure is that there is like a tendency to rely upon soft money. And so like sometimes things aren't as stable as they probably, as I feel like they could be, but um, it's, that's just kind of the nature of the game. And so I really love the work that I'm doing. So it makes it worth it, but it is, it is, it is tough. You know, it's, it's not, um, it's not, uh, it's not easy sometimes. I think living in Vancouver and, and working as a curatorial assistant, that's a tough reality. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And museums are a fickle field. Yeah, they are a fickle <laughs> field. Yeah. They're a great field, but it is definitely fickle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your work? Hmm. I, so I'm gay, like totally, but I think, uh, I don't like, I'm, I'm hesitant because I'm cis and I'm white and I'm, I'm, you know, as this white man, I don't feel the need to like, I don't want to, I don't want to crowd the space. And I feel like it's very easy to do that. Um, as far as like, has it been difficult for me to, what was the question again? It was the, uh, has it affected your work in any way? Has it affected my work in any way? I don't think it has. Like it probably has in some way. Um, I think anybody, when you come to grips with an identity, it's tricky. Even if you're in a very like comfortable space like Vancouver, in North Carolina, I was not in a comfortable space. And I think it took me a long time to get to the place that I am now um, in terms of like self-love. So that's like tricky. But as far as like the work that I'm doing, nah, I think the work I, I'm doing is kind of independent from it. 
Um, but I can see if I was more, if I was, a, if, I was if I was a more visible minority um, or belonging to like a traditionally excluded group of people, it would definitely impact um, my my work. And so I'm, I'm very conscious of that interacting with people who might be underrepresented in some way. And I try to I try to build community where I can. Uh- do you find uh, museums are very open and welcoming or closed off and insular or both? Hmm. I think traditionally museums have been quite closed off. And I think the idea of ac- like uh, like scholarship or, you know, um, academic life has been exclusive. It'll, it still kind of is exclusive, I think. Um, people who succeed in academia... Um, and I feel like this is a tangent to your question, <laughs> but uh, people who succeed in academia usually have some sort of uh, leg up, like they have some sort of mm-hmm. privilege, um, whether they recognize it or not. Um, and so I think museums are kind of an extension of, you know, uh, universities uh, or um, research institutions. And so there's inherent, I think, issues with within them as well. Um, so I think traditionally and even probably presently, there are definitely museums that are more closed off um, and more stodgy or kind of difficult to break into. Uh, but I feel like the one thing that's nice about the BD is it's relatively small in terms of who's in the BD. And there are also like a lot of efforts that we're undertaking to kind of combat the traditional concept of what a museum is. And I really value that because um, I think everybody has the opportunity to learn. Um, everybody has an opportunity to learn about their history and uh, to know that the things that happened in the past were wrong and it's okay to say this is unacceptable. How do we move forward from this and build a better future? The BD is doing a great job of that. Um, and I've seen museums around the world um, making huge strides to be more welcoming places. Um, but I also see some disturbing trends like credential creep mm. um, where you're requiring academic learning for things that you can learn on the job. Yeah. Um, which just serves to keep the field um, white and middle class. Yeah. And exclusive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ultimately. Yeah. I, I actually feel like the credential creep is like a major, I think it's, it's majorly disappointing because I feel like there's so many opportunities within collections to foster the skills of a diverse group of people. But um, yeah, again, if you're, if you're limiting, like if PhDs are coming in as curatorial assistants, I think that's, that kind of defeats the point of getting a PhD. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird landscape to navigate, but you're totally right. Like, yeah. Speaking of navigating, one thing we've all had to navigate was COVID. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult to uh, take care of a collection uh, remotely over Zoom. Mm. Uh, so how did the pandemic impact your work? Um, so I actually, so I started at the BD in 2021 and it was like mid, mid-pandemic at that point. And, um, we had pretty much, we had limitations on who could be in a certain room, like the, like the number of people, which is difficult. Um, and we didn't have, it was, yeah, it was, it was just more, um, I feel like there was just kind of like the, the human touch, like the person, personability or the personable nature of the job was kind of lost. Cause it was like, I was the only person in a room. I was wearing a mask, um, a lot of email communication, um, and, it, it was, it was mostly that the museum itself was kind of like empty. Like it wasn't like, you know, functioning the way that it is now where it's like kind of bustling and, and a lot of activities happening. Um, and the same is true for like research and stuff. So the, one of the main things that I do in my job is to like send specimens on loan to researchers, you know, 
within UBC or, you know, across the planet. And it was, um, it was trickier to do that as I think in the, in the early stages of my, of my job. Um, but I feel like, I, I feel like it, like COVID wasn't, it didn't like heavily impact me. Like I wasn't like responsible for keeping organisms alive or for teaching. Um, even though it was like kind of difficult and it's scary, uh, cause of, you know, just what was happening in the world. Uh, I like the nature of my job is pretty much the same, like helping Linda, helping Karen, um, help curate the collection, fulfill loans, um, facilitate research. Like it didn't really change too much. I did finish my master's uh, in 2020. And so I defended my thesis in my pajamas. I wore a nice shirt, but I had like pajamas <laughs> and it was so surreal. I was just like, oh my God, so stressful. I, I was so stressed. I gave myself shingles, I think. And like, oh, I no. definitely had shingles. I don't know if I gave myself shingles, but it was a wild ride. And that I think was more stressful and more impactful than, you know, uh, transitioning to UBC, but yeah, moving during the pandemic would not be fun. No, it was wild. Yeah, I, I remember <laughs> I, I rent. I and I, I drove from Edmonton. I did it. I did it in a day. Um, I did a straight shot. I, I was uh-huh. like, I could stop, but I was like, no, I just want to go. Like, what's the point of stopping? Yeah. Um, and traffic wasn't that bad, which is kind of nice. Uh, the Coca Hollow, you know, hadn't washed out. Like it was, it was pretty. Yeah, it was wild times for sure. Well, I'm glad it wasn't too traumatic. Um, <laughs> I'm glad the BD isn't as sterile uh, socially as it uh, was during that time. Um, yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's a great team that they have over there. And that's certainly one of the benefits of working with them. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Like coming from the Smithsonian, like everything was kind of siloed. And at the BD, not in a bad way, but it's just such a huge museum, mm-hmm. um, huge collections that you kind of, each department didn't necessarily interact with one another readily um, because there just wasn't time everybody's busy, you know, you're, you have your own kind of world that you're operating in. And so being at the BD, I can, I know everybody, I know the marketing people, I know the designs and exhibits people, I know the teaching and learning, you know, individuals and, uh, yeah, all the, all the collections people I know. It's great. Like, I love it. It's the perfect size. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Now, if anyone's listening to you right now and wants to follow in your footsteps, uh, what advice or courses or experience would you recommend they pursue to become the next curatorial assistant? Interesting. When you retire. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Retirement. I know. Um, tomorrow I'm going to retire. Uh, I think, what would I recommend? I would recommend, uh, I, I really, I was really into learning about the organisms. So I think if you can build a knowledge base around organisms in some way, that's like to your benefit if you want to work in a natural history collection. Uh, whether you're taking mammalogy courses or you're taking um, insect courses, fungi courses, um, plant courses, take those courses, talk to the professors that teach them, go to office hours. Like actually, mm-hmm. you know, getting to know your professor was really helpful for me, kind of finding a footing and also having good references. And, and he, my, my, my prof in undergrad actually helped me. He, he knew he was like, oh, maybe you should just email people at the Smithsonian and see if they need a volunteer. I know this person has got a lot of projects going on. And so I kind of cold emailed a bunch of people. Um, and a lot of them didn't respond, <laughs> but sure. somebody did. And he was, he had, he had kind of a know-how of like, this is what the community looks like. And as a student, you don't really know what the community looks like until you kind of break in and your professors are a really good way to do that. Um, so yeah, I would, I would I highly recommend taking organismal classes, um, going to your office hours and talking to your professors, joining like, if you, if you really want to get into like learning species and things and learning about biodiversity, um, joining like, you know, amateur naturalist clubs, like nature Vancouver is a really great club. Um, you know, the Vancouver Mycological Society, great club. Like it's, you know, there's a lot of 
opportunity within Vancouver to like, or I guess wherever people are listening to this ad. <laughs> Just make sure it's the right kind of club. Oh yeah. <laughs> naturalist or, or Oh nature. yeah, yeah. Not naturalist Vancouver, nature Vancouver. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a very important distinction. One of them's on Rec Beach and one yeah. of them's in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also hit in a very good piece of advice. Um, it never hurts to ask. Yeah. You know, fire off these emails. Uh, if the worst thing that's going to happen is people might not get back to you, Yeah, but they might. Yeah. And it might change your life. Yeah. Oh yeah. So hundred percent. Like, yeah. And I think, I think people who also, I feel like with privilege comes like the, I feel like we're, I don't know what we're talking about, but I, it's always <laughs> yeah. going back to privilege. It's always going back to, you know, absolutely. You know, how do you like, it's, how do you break through this like awful structure? Um, but, uh, people who, yeah, people who have privilege, I think are insulated from the fear of failure in some ways because they're able, they have a safety net. Mm -hmm. And so if you, like, I did not have a safety net, but I luckily had contacts with other professors um, and people that I could kind of like help me through this process. And um, yeah, like, like standing up for yourself and being like, no, this is what I want. It's okay to do that in a way that's not um, aggressive, but mm -hmm. also not unassertive, if that makes sense syntactically. <laughs> No, that's, that's perfect. Mm. Uh, what was that course that that prof taught? Oh, so he, he taught a rare plants. Uh, so the professor I'm going to give a shout out is, uh, Alexander Krings at North Carolina state university. He's the director of the uh, herbarium there and he taught, uh, rare plants in North Carolina. Oh, that sounds like fun. It was fantastic. I actually got a job in the herbarium based off of, I, cause I applied for a job. I was taking his class and then he posted a position for helping design this like mobile web application to identify those, um, endangered species in North Carolina that are like federally listed. And, uh, for that job, for that class and for the job, all we did was like travel around really weird parts of like, and beautiful remote parts of North Carolina looking for extremely endangered, uh, vascular plant species and photographing them and learning about them. And, uh, it was awesome. It was like, honestly, one of the best jobs I've ever had in my entire life. Just, you know, driving from corner to corner of the state, looking at, you know, Tiny, tiny plants and big plants. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Yeah, awesome. That leads me to an ethical question that often comes up with uh, museums collecting. Mm. When you find an endangered species, do you collect it or do you leave it there? Uh, so within Canada, you 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 can't, I guess, I don't know the, the structure within Canada as well as I know in the States. Um, I actually don't, I think as far as like people making personal collections, um, I'm very hesitant to advocate for that. If something's endangered or if you don't know what something is, don't collect it. Um, if something is endangered and you know it's endangered, um, you can always contact like people within our herbarium. You can contact specialists within the BC government. Um, you can contact the conservation data center. They have a lot of information on you know rare and endangered plant species around BC. Um, but you shouldn't be like the average everyday person shouldn't be going out you know collecting these rare and endangered um, plants um, or lichens. Perfect. Good advice. Uh, same with fossils for the ah, most part. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Do people, I guess, I don't know much about the history of fossil collection, but I can imagine people do it just for like curios and stuff. Or, yes. Yeah. Hmm. And there's certain legal issues around it and also logistical. Um, I get so many people calling with a house full of rocks that they don't want. <laughs> and um, can I take them? And I say, no, ah. I don't have space. <laughs> Our floor can't support more rock. Yeah, it's too heavy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, fields are changing at a rapid pace. Um, where do you see, uh, 
collections management and curatorial research going in the future? And what advice do you have for uh, young people who are maybe getting into the field? Hmm. I don't know. It's hard to predict what the future looks like. Um, Or what trends do you see emerging? Trends do I see That are going to reshape um, even just museums. Hmm. I think there's been a lot of like uh, work integrating large data sets. So like where you have digital digitized uh, specimens and that includes like specimen images or images of like the object um, as well as it's like electronic data and asking like large scale, like, you know, global questions regarding ecology and um, conservation. And so I think that's like learning about that would be kind of to your benefit, understanding digitization um, understanding some of the techniques that people use to like harvest DNA from these, mm-hmm. um, or like some of the, like, like learning about the technical aspects, um, regarding your collection and how it's used by scientists. Um, uh, that's always a challenge for, especially natural history collections where you want to save everything because you don't know how we're going to study it in the future. Um, we're so grateful that, um, people in the 1800s, uh, collected things that preserved their DNA, because who knew that we'd have uh, DNA analysis in, mm. in this day and age? Yeah, I think I think yeah, like it's it's yeah, like it's it seems almost random that that would have kind of like happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was directed by science and scientific discovery, but yeah, I think yeah, just learning about those kind of techniques. Um, but as far as like general trends, that's like a really good question, and I feel like I'm having issue. Uh, I'm having like difficulty trying to like. <laughs> I feel like I don't know. I think there like. Yeah. Hmm. I think, yeah, big data, big data seems to be like a big thing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it will be in the future, I don't know. Indigenization actually of collections is, is in- incredibly important. So kind of understanding that process actually, I think would be to the benefit of people coming into this field and why it's important. Like why, why do we need to, you know, break from the reins of colonialism within our collections that are, you know, have a, you know, dark history to them. That's very good advice. Um, you know, you may think you just need to do science courses uh, to get into a position like that, but having some cultural uh, context is also uh, vital. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Forward. Yeah, it's like a, it's a very human thing that we're doing. You know, we're all people mm-hmm. in this field, and the idea of us collecting and maintaining things is very human, mm-hmm. um, for better or for worse. So, um, you're at the beginning of your career. Uh, I'd like you to again look toward the future and uh, think about the end of your career. When you retire, what do you want to look back on as your legacy? Hmm. I think, hmm, what do I want to look back on as my legacy? Or I can cut the question. Ah, That's cool. No, this is a good question. It's just (laughs) going to take me a second because I I don't think about my legacy. I think of myself as so temporal. Like I feel like within the context of a museum, like, or within, within, I guess, life generally that I will kind of, I'll be here, I'll do good work. And then when I leave, like the impression of me will remain, but it won't be important that I am what remains. I think maybe that's my answer to it, if that makes sense. No, I think that's perfect. It is a very difficult question to ask because the work that you're doing isn't monument building. It's maintaining so that others can come along and use that work. Uh, Because if you weren't doing it, the collection would degrade or people wouldn't be able to access the collection and it wouldn't have a purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's my answer then. (laughs) No, perfect. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Great. 
Well, Spencer, those are all my questions. Did I miss anything or did you want to add anything before I let you go? I don't think so, no. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time and your clear passion. And thank you for always identifying my my weird plant <laughs> photos. And um, I look forward to running into you in the halls again. Yeah, it was fantastic. Anytime. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robinson, and Ollie Beatty designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next